Dr. Robert Fraser is a British author and biographer. Currently, he is Professor Emeritus at the Open University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. But before that, he taught at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana, at the University of Leeds, the University of London, and at Trinity College, Cambridge. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Robert Fraser. So where are you joining us uh, today from? Well, I live about 15 miles outside the city of Oxford in a place called Charbury, which is one of the most beautiful places in the English Cotswolds. Okay. What's beautiful about it, I can't necessarily see from... (laughs) It looks sunny, but I can't see from... Well, actually, we're about five miles away from the nearest main road. It's very convenient for Oxford. We can get the train in. About 10 minutes, I'm in the Bodleian Library. Another hour, I'm in London. So it's very well connected, but it's very rural, Hmm. very peaceful. Uh, It's ideal for writing. Have you always been there? Oh, no, I was brought up uh, on the outskirts of London in a place called Kingston-upon-Thames, which is where the Saxon kings used to be crowned in England in the early Middle Ages. And from there, I went to Winchester, which is another Saxon town, and I had a beautiful fluting treble voice, so I sang in the cathedral choir. Then I went back to Kingston. Then I went to the University of Sussex, which then was very new. It was a kind of interdisciplinary university. Mm. And I read English and philosophy. I took an MA and then went out to Africa, where I was for five years. Then back to the University of Leeds in the north, then the University of London, then the University of Cambridge, <laughs> then back to London. I've been very peripatetic, I have to tell you. And then at a place called the Open University, which is an open access university. So it, it's very egalitarian. Mm. But also like the Sussex, where I went originally, very interdisciplinary. Wow. Mm. I actually studied abroad at the University of Leeds. Um... That's it. You, I saw you did your year there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, it was only about a half a year, six months. Where were you staying? I was staying at Liberty Dock um, by the Royal Armory, if you're familiar. Right. OK. So sort of on the outskirts, I, I was one of those rare students who, who was fortunate enough to have to see the whole city every day going right. to class. <laughs> and did you travel by, in by bus? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As a visitor, that was still very romantic to me. Um, yes. By the end of it, <laughs> yeah. by the end of it, it might yeah. have lost its appeal, but it was very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Did you like it? I did. I found Leeds to be uh, a really neat city. Um, and I thought there were a lot of parallels to I'm, I'm in Philly now in Philadelphia. Yeah. There were a lot of parallels to Philadelphia and, and maybe even Baltimore. Um, right. There was something very. Um, there was a grittiness to Leeds that I really appreciated. Yes, yes. But where they, they say where there's muck, there's brass. In other words, mm. where there's industry, there's lots of money. Mm. So Leeds was built on industrial money. You could probably tell. Yeah, yeah. but it, it didn't have a it didn't have too much glitz to it. It wasn't a flashy city. No, no, oh, no, not at all. No. Yeah. But it's got things going on like the Leeds International Piano Competition. Did you coincide with that, which is once every two years? which are um, one of the main musical festivals in the world, actually. Wow. Uh, and yeah, that's right. No, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but it did yeah. have a very vibrant art scene, I found. Oh, yes. 
It's very cool. And yeah. I was plugged in with a with a professor who was a he's a Northern Irish poet, and he was always having and bigger his name? names. His name is Paul Mattern. Oh yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, there was a lot of interest in Anglo-Irish literature in the School of English when I was there. Mm. There's a man called Norman Jeffers, who was a man who was responsible for me going there, and he had a little group of lecturers lecturing on Anglo-Irish literature. A lot of them went on to make their names. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's something of a little introduction from you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm curious. I've spoken to a lot of scholars, but you probably have the most robust Wikipedia page. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering how even one goes about getting a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Were you even aware when you first had? A, I, a I wasn't. I think somebody put a stub down. You know what a stub is? It's just yeah. a basic thing. And then they reprimand you and say this new thing needs filling out. And I think one of my former students started filling it out. And then my daughter-in-law kind of pitched in. Hmm. And it gradually grew. <laughs> well, it's well written. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever touched it, but it, it's very yeah. interesting. Um, well, you gave me a little tour of all the universities you've been at. I I'd be really interested because as I was reading your Wikipedia page, it seemed like you had a really interesting, <laughs> similar to how you visited a lot of places uh, along the way. It seemed like you were interested in a lot of different ideas. I think eventually I want to sort of settle down on Proust and Frazier, but yeah. I'm really curious about how you got into sort of the academy to begin with, uh, maybe the history of your intellectual pursuits. <laughs> you remember when you first started getting really interested in thinking about being a scholar? I'm curious. Yeah, I if think you... about the age of 16. Okay. I think, I think at the age of 16, two things happen. You fall in love with girls and you fall in love with books. Yeah. And you try to make sure they don't get in one another's way. You know? <laughs> Yeah. I think I decided about the age of 17, 18, I wanted to become an academic. I didn't know, didn't know whether to go to one of the traditional universities like Oxford and Cambridge, whether I would have had a very sort of straight down the line, straight laced degree, or to go somewhere newer. And I decided to go to Sussex because they were pioneering this interdisciplinary approach. Uh, slightly different from the American system, you had a major, which in my case was literature, and you had a number of contextual subjects. I did English and philosophy, and I did a lot of courses which crossed over between the two. And then for my graduate work, I decided I was interested in crossovers between literature and anthropology. At that stage, I decided to go to Africa and teach, which struck me as being a good liberation where you know, good way of blowing off, blowing away all the cobwebs and, and having a bit of a ball and exploring the world and discovering about the world at the same time. And it was about that time I became interested in uh, anthropology as literature, ways of writing anthropology. And that's eventually led me to Sir James Fraser. Interesting. And was Proust before or after that? your interest in? Oh, I think it was after that. Yes, it was after that. Yes. I do have this uh, great love for very long books, you probably realise. <laughs> That's what it I don't like. reckon a book is a proper book unless it's, it goes to about five volumes, you know. And uh, <laughs> the, the Golden Bough in its third edition is 12 volumes long. 
Then Sir James Fraser added a, an aftermath, and I thought it would stop at 13. But after about a, a hundred years, the publishers approached me and said, would you like to write a commentary on this? So I wrote a commentary on it called The Making of the Golden Bough, which they then added to the existing 13 volumes. So it went up to 14. And then they added Robert Ackerman's biography of Fraser. So it's now 15 volumes long. Yeah. It's a lifetime pursuit to get through that, I'm sure. That's right, yes. I think it, it's a book that suffers from, you know, elephantizers. You know, it gets grows and grows and grows. And I, I like the aesthetic of, you know, the long read, the deep read, you know, mm. just getting into a book and living with it. And for about, it, it takes about six months to read your way through Proust in French, I think. Mm. And it takes about equivalent amount of time to read The Golden Bough. But there's something about the rhythm of a very long narrative that I find very satisfying. Interesting. When you're reading a really long book like that, six months for Proust, for example, how much time minimum would you say you, you would need to spend per day to not sort of break that rhythm of the prose? All right. I reckon I would read sort of 100 pages a day, which would probably take me. Well, it depends if I'm reading in French or English. Sure. I read first of all in French. So I could do about 30 pages an hour. So that would be about three and a half hours, you know, and then I begin to get tired. <laughs> the first time I read Proust, I remember I went to France on holiday. I had a gite in Normandy and I had a straw hat, which is my Proustian straw hat. It's in the summertime. And I sat under an apple tree reading Proust. And that was my Proust apple tree. <laughs> That's awesome. Very good book to take on holiday with you. <laughs> I've never read it, admittedly. I've never read either of the books we're going to talk about today, actually. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm that's hoping good, you could sell me on them. That's a very good start. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I want to, I'm going to bounce back and forth here a little bit. When you're 16 years old, thinking about being an academic or being a scholar, that seems like a unique, uh, at least nowadays, a unique 16 year old pursuit. <laughs> Did yeah. you have any models for scholarship? Because, of course, Fraser sort of, Everything I've read about him, he's something of a par the paragon of the gentleman scholar and sort of a scholar yeah. to his fingertips. So it's interesting that you landed there eventually. <laughs> what what was your model for for scholarship? I mean, what would have even pushed you in that direction? Um, yes, when I was in the cathedral choir, I went to a choir school, and the dean of the cathedral was a man called Edward Gordon Selwyn who was probably the country's leading New Testament scholar. Mm. I was very impressed by him and his dedication and his gentleness. And I used to go and visit him in the deanery, book-lined room, you know, and settle in his armchair. And I, I thought this was a, a very good way of life. The other thing was, when I was about 17, I saw on the television a dramatization of... Um, a novel by C.P. Snow. Have you heard of C.P. Snow? No. C.P. Snow was a Cambridge scholar. He was a scientist, actually. He was a novelist on the sly, and he wrote books that were actually set in Cambridge colleges hmm. full of gentlemen wafting around in black gowns. And uh, there was, I remember, a dramatization of the masters, and it struck me this was actually quite a glamorous way of life, actually. So I went for it, you know, and I... I was all right. I have to say, I wasn't that good at school 
you know, I think there's this illusion that people who end up as scholars have always been very academic. But I, I thought I was quite slow to begin with, but I became interested, I think, at the age of 16 or 17, when things became controversial. You know, um, the kind of study you do up to the age of 15 is rather passive. You're fed information and then you're examined on. I thought that was very, very boring. But about the age of 16, I started reading things, reading philosophy, reading politics, reading political science. And it struck me as there was this kind of drama of ideas going on here, this clash of ideas, hmm. which really excited me. And I've been like that ever since. And I hate settled points of view. And I like sceptical writers who always question, receive bodies of opinion, and even their own opinions. Hmm. Do, do you have any, um, any, any sort of uh, load stars in that direction? Any, any scholars or, or people that sort of fit that description of, of always sort of well, not being a contrarian? When I was growing up, it was a man called Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher. Yeah. I remember when he died, it was my first year at university and immediately rushed out and they bought the first volume of his autobiography. Mm. He was, there was something rather sceptical, devilish, mischievous. He had a mischievous intelligence, you know. Mm. And having grown up in a rather conservative household where a lot of things were taken for granted, I mean, my parents were card-carrying Christians, my father was a church warden. He was a conservative mayor of the local town. So, you know, he, was, he wasn't exactly reactionary, but he was very solid. And I kind of liked the idea of questioning all these received ideas. And Bertrand Russell, who used to appear on the radio in something called the Brains Trust, talking to people like Julian Huxley, he never took anything for granted. I mean, mm. you know, he was... He used to just explode things all the time. And he would toss ideas up in the air. And obviously, he'd get absolutely delighted in thinking. And I think thinking is a very exciting activity. And sometimes a very subversive activity. That's what I like about it, I think. <laughs> well, well, who, I'm sorry, can you remind me of the name of the gentleman you described who, who was your initial... Um maybe model for, for scholarship. You described him sitting in an armchair and you described that. He's a man of... called Edward Gordon Selwyn. He was a New Testament scholar. He was a Greek scholar. Um, I did some classics at school and I always enjoyed reading classical literature, which is another reason why I lighted on to James Fraser eventually, because he was a classical scholar and an anthropologist. Uh, the chap I'm talking about brought together the study of the classics and the study of religion. And I like that crossover. Sure. James Fraser brought together the study of the classics and the study of anthropology. Mm. And I've always loved people who think outside the box, you know, because I hate being in boxes. And as soon as I'm in a box, I feel very claustrophobic and I want to break it open. Right. <laughs> and I like these iconoclastic thinkers break open the received, you know, terms of reference of their own time, the received ideas. Uh, Bertrand Russell was very much like that. He's very exciting, very iconoclastic, very mouvementé, as they say, very 
kinetic in his thought, always traveling through. So as soon as you thought something, you start to doubt that statement and then you move on, right? I don't like settling much, hmm. either physically or intellectually. I don't want to stay put. I don't want to move on. I, I love this idea of these two archetypes where you have in, in Edward Gordon Selman, I, the word that you used to describe him that stuck out to me was sort of very gentle. <laughs> and, then, and then you have in Bertrand Russell, the word that stuck out to me was mischievous. And, and this, I, that this idea is of the of the intellectual sort of being able to sit down and yeah. be very gentle sort of physically and li live a very contemplative life. But then that the fruits of that contemplation being themselves mischievous. That's yeah, really that's interesting right. to me. That that's seems right. to, uh, that seems to track with uh, what I read on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> uh, can you tell me about Jeffrey Hill at Leeds? I think that stuck out to me because of my time in Leeds. Um, yes. who, who was Jeffrey Hill? He, he has a prominent place in, on your description. Yeah, well, he was later knighted. He was a Jeffrey Hill FRS. Um, he was arguably the greatest English poet of my lifetime. Hmm. Uh, when I went to Leeds, he'd been teaching there for about 20 years. I used to shadow him because he gave the Shakespeare lectures to the first, second and third year undergraduates. And my job when I first went was to service his lectures through tutorials. So he would lecture to the entire year, and then the year would be broken down into little groups of six students, and I'd take them for discussion groups. He was a very rigorous scholar, um, a very intelligent scholar, but also a very experimental poet. And some of the experiment, he brought together experimentalism and tradition, if you know what I mean. I don't think he would have seen those two, two things as being antithetical. He saw his poetry as being rooted in tradition, but rather like T.S. Eliot, he thought of tradition as something which moved forward. You know, he never thought of tradition as being static. His contribution to the tradition was to extend it. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, he died about five years ago now. After Leeds, his marriage broke up. He went to Cambridge. Um, then he there's a man called uh, Christopher Ricks, who's a scholar of his, who invited him over to America. And he's finished his career as a professor of English at Boston University. Hmm. And then he went back to Cambridge, where he died about five years ago. But he's enormously well respected in the world of English poetry. Interesting. I, I'm interested in this idea, especially with him and then related to the other gentleman we spoke of and, and yourself with this idea of tradition and experimentalism. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious in your career being interested um, in uh, interdisciplinary pursuits and and even iconoclastic thinkers. Yeah. Um, there has to be a certain amount of or a certain relationship with risk there as far yeah. as your career is concerned. Oh, yeah. Were there moments where the the sort of straight um, intellectual, uh, the straight scholar path was was really enticing uh, and the actual the aberrant thinker path was was actually difficult? Uh, I think the straight scholar path really is it is the more is the easier one. Hmm. I mean, I. In America, I think, as in England, 
the standard academic career takes this form. You take your first degree, your second degree, then you write a PhD on something quite narrow and you stay with that specialism for the rest of your life. And often, you know, you select a century to concentrate on. You're an 18th century scholar, a 19th century scholar, 20th century scholar, and you stay with that. And you're not expected to think or teach outside those boundaries. Um, and if you really want to get on in academic life, that's what you do. You know, you make your pitch, you say, I'm an 18th century man, and you stay as an 18th century man, and you carry on, and as jobs come available in, in that field, you put in for it, and you progress up and up and up and up, uh, and eventually you end up with a chair, and, you know, the sky's the limit. I was always finding that I was coming up against a slight barrier I would go in for an interview and people would say, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this. You know, where's the center? I remember somebody saying to me at an interview, where's the key to all these mythologies? And I was saying, you know, I think I've lost the key if ever I found the key. I'm not interested in locking anything. <laughs> I'm interested in opening things up. Uh, and it, it doesn't serve you well, actually career-wise, but I think I've had an interesting and diverse career. Um, it hasn't been as vertical as it should have been. You know, I had never been a steeplejack, reached the top of the chimney, but I sort of got there in the end. <laughs> do, do you think you need a key going, running with that uh, analogy a bit? Do you think you need a key to open things up? As long as you throw it away, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What do you mean by that? Can you give me an example? That that's there's a really interesting. That sounds really interesting to me. I've heard it before. Who is it? The uh, was it Meister Eckhart said that the ultimate leave taking is the leaving of God for God. <laughs> <laughs> and and I wonder if there's something similar with, uh, you know, scholarship where as soon as you're you sort of alluded to this earlier, as soon as you start to feel settled, that's when you need to sort of shake things up. That's when you move on. Yes. I tended to do about you know, three years on a project, write a book on it, and then, and then move on to something else. And people expect me to write the sequel, but I, I don't really want to write the sequel. Mm. Occasionally, I've had difficulties that I've, I've, I've spent three or four years writing a book and gone on to something else. And then somebody's expect me to, to write a sequel to the original book. And I found it very difficult to get back in time to the period when I was enthused by that, you know. That happened with Fraser to a certain extent. I mean, I, I did a lot of work on Fraser when I was in my late 30s, early 40s. And those publications were very successful. And people were always wanting to me to go back and re-edit things and this kind of thing. And I, I found it difficult to get back into the mood because I had been in the mood, you know. But, but I kind of got out of the mood. Uh, there was another person I worked on, a chap called George Barker, who's a poet, is a protege of T.S. Eliot's. Mm. Um, I knew him quite well. I worked with him. I edited his collected poems. Um, then a, an interval went by, about 10 years, and then he died. And I was in Cambridge, this was in 1991, he just died. And the widow approached to me and said, would you write his biography? Because he'd been very impressed by the edition that I'd done of his poems. 
And I thought about it, or do I want to go back there? I thought, all right, it's a biography. It's different from an edition. I'll do that. But it was actually quite difficult to get back to it mm. because the role of an editor and the role of a biographer are totally different. Mm. You know, uh, an editor approaches a text on bended knee. He's got to respect what he's been given. His job is to clarify the text and to be as true to it and as to be as authentic as he can. But a biographer, of course, has to approach the life. And as soon as he approaches the life, he finds all the flaws. He finds out, finds out that this man that he admired had feet of, feet of clay. And of course, I'd, I'd done the, the addition in a mood of enormous respect for this man. When the widow asked me to do the biography, she expected me to write a respectful biography. Mm. That's not what she got, because I found out about, you know, the things that he'd done. He'd hurt people. He'd been selfish. He was a very narcissistic. There are lots of things about him that were actually not reprehensible, but, you know, which I had to be honest about as the biographer. And she didn't like it, you know. Um, I was seeing him with fresh eyes. So if I go back to a project, I've got to come at it from a different angle. So if I was the editor, I've got to be the biographer. And it, it's a totally different approach. So if I go back to a subject, I will always completely rethink it, completely. So if I went back to Proust, which I might do, then I, would, I, I would completely rethink my approach, you know? I'm curious with the George Baker experience. Barker. George Barker, excuse me. Yeah. Let me let me edit that. <laughs> with the George Barker experience, um, had that been your first biography? Um, my first actual biography. I'd written a book about James Fraser, and I'd written a book about Proust before that. Okay. okay. They were what I would call intellectual biographies and which I was interested in, in following somebody's intellectual progress through, throughout their life from stage to stage, from book to book. I wasn't really interested in their private life. Sure. Um, and other people had written biographies. Robert Ackerman had written a biography of Sir James Fraser and there'd been lots of biographies of Proust. And so I wasn't interested in doing that. I was interested in the structure of their ideas. Uh, when it came to George Parker, he was the first biography of this man, and he had a very lively existence. Fifteen children, five different wives, really quite scandal-ridden, actually. Um, so it was the first one in which I had to, as it were, open up the, the can of worms. <laughs> sure. I, I asked that question because I'm curious if, if that had been, it sounds like it was your first biography of that type. No. And the intellectual biography would have allowed you perhaps to still preserve your fandom yes, and your respect right. and your appreciation where this, yeah. this new yeah. form delving yeah. into the private life may have actually jeopardized that. And it sounds like it did. I'm curious as you've moved on in your interest to other poets, yeah. if that idea that if, if I dive into their personal lives, will I still really 
revere these people the way I used to. It, I wonder mm-hmm. if that has been in the back of your mind as you read it other poets. It happens all the time. It's bound to happen, I think. I, I, then I wrote a biography of a man called David Gascoigne, who was a surrealist poet. Again, interesting man. Again, feet of clay, but rather different feet of, of rather different clay. Um, and of course, you know, that is, I've become more and more fascinated by the challenge of what we tend to call life writing, ways of um, writing biography, ways of accounting for other people's lives, and actually my own life to some extent. Um, so I've moved on now. Um, currently, when I teach, I teach in London and I teach a course in, in life writing. And I I'm, uh, I'm often find myself teaching people who were in the same position I was in 30 years ago. In other words, they're people often with a very strong academic background. Many of my students have got PhDs, but they're trying to break the mold. They know how to write a thesis. They know how to write a monograph, but they want to write a biography. And that's very different and much more personal. And uh, they're relying on me to help them to find their own voice and to escape the trap of academic writing, which can be a trap, stimulating in its way, but it has its limitations. And I think if you become a biographer, there's certain habits you have to lose and others you have to acquire. And I'm teaching them to do that. That's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Shifting maybe back to to Fraser a bit, the, the book that you wrote was, as you alluded to, The Making of the Golden Bough, yeah. uh, or The Origins and Growth of an Argument. Um, I was reading about your interest in some of his more provocative ideas. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'm curious, what are the highlights of his not very provocative and accepted ideas? And then what are some of the highlights uh, of his more provocative ideas and I'm interested in revisiting sort of the balance between those things. And I'll, I'll come back to that after you, after you outline those. Yes. I suppose I should set him in context, really. Can I do that? Please. Oh, please. He was a Scot. He grew up in Glasgow. Um, he went to the University of Glasgow. We had a very broad education. The Scottish universities in the 19th century were places where you could pick up what would now be called an interdisciplinary education. So he studied physics under a man called Lord Kelvin. He studied humanity, which is which is Latin. He studied Greek. He studied the whole range of subjects. Uh, then he went to Cambridge and took the classics tripos uh, in Latin and Greek. I did very well, got a first class degree, then decided to do graduate work and wrote a fellowship dissertation on philosophy. So he moved on again. He wrote a philosophical dissertation on Plato, which is published in 1930, um, shortly before he died. And then he went back to the classics. He started editing and translating the work of a man called Pausanias. Do you know about Pausanias? No. Pausanias was a second century Lydian Greek who traveled in Greece in the the second century AD. And he left the most cogent account we've got of all the classical sites. 
So if you want, want, want to know what Delphi was like in 150 AD, or what my Argos were like, you can go back to him and you can find very, very, somewhat prosaic, but very detailed descriptions of all these sites, and also an account of all the legends and religious cults connected with them. So it's a very very, very important source of information for students of comparative religion and archaeologists and, in Fraser's time, anthropologists as well. And it was while he was editing and translating that, what is called the description of Greece by Pausanias, he came upon an account of a cult to the, to the goddess Diana established on the shores of Lake Neni, 12 miles away from Rome, that was going, still going in the second century AD. Now, the, the priest of the cult was, who was also known as the king of the wood, was appointed in a unique and extraordinary way. He was situated in front of an oak tree, sword in hand, open to all comers, and people would come and challenge him for hand-to-hand combat. And whoever slew him then took on the role of the king of the wood and the priest of the cult. The most extraordinary rule of descent Fraser could hardly believe his eyes and his ears. And he started investigating why, you know, why why would you have this? Why would you have a priest and a king who had to defend himself sword in hand? And why would the man who slew him then become the king and the priest? This is very odd. And he started looking into it and looking at all kinds of um, parallel instances throughout the world. And the more he looked, the more he found. And this grew and this grew and this grew until it became the, the first edition of the Golden Bough, published in, 19, in 1890. So originally it started really with, with, with a footnote to classical archaeology. It was something quite sober. That the more he looked, the more parallels he found. And he started developing something I suppose you would call the comparative method, which I think is very important in him. He will take an instance in ancient Rome, he'll take something in ancient Madagascar, then he'll go to Australia, and he'll find all of these customs and he'll relate them to one another. So it's rather exciting to read. He will float an idea and then he will adduce examples from all over the world. And it's like a roller coaster, you know, suddenly you're in the Pacific, then you're in the North Atlantic, you know, then you're in the North Pole, then you're in Anglo-Saxon England, and you're back to ancient Greece. And he's following, you know, this, this train of thought all over the world. And it, it, it's a very exciting read and actually quite breathtaking. Sorry, I didn't know if you were just pausing. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um Okay. And and from that, what are his well, I want to ask about what his more traditional yes, traditionally okay. accepted views are, but I have a few follow-up questions yeah. from that from that contextualization. Um with 
I imagine there would have been something about that footnote that was singular, singularly fascinating to him. Yeah. And I wonder if what you know about his biography would have lent itself to interest in that particular anecdote. So, uh, right. antidote. So, um, for example, I'm speculating here, but I wonder if his experience <laughs> of monarchy yes would have just seemed so strange compared to this footnote that he's reading oh um, absolutely yes i mean in in his time of course uh, england and scotland had had a joint monarchy since 1603 by a strict role of primogeniture that is the eldest son of the king would have succeeded uh, we still got that system, actually, and we've now got uh, King Charles III, who, of course, the eldest son of Princess Elizabeth, uh, of Queen Elizabeth. So it's quite an orderly kind of descent from generation to generation. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, who's just died, was on the throne for, well, you know, from 1952 to 1920, 70 years she was on the throne. Uh, and it's quite... Uh, the. The British monarchy is quite settled. So it's quite disturbing to go back to a system whereby, you know, monarchy was was disputed and disputed violently, you know, where, where, where the strongest ruled. Um, and you could see also how these ideas meshed with ideas that were comparatively new in the late Victorian period about the survival of the fittest. Mm. I mean, Darwin had written a book called The Origin of the Species, you know, um, from natural selection. And the whole idea about that was that the fittest person uh, or the fittest species actually conquered and superseded what had gone before. So, in fact, what Fraser had discovered about ancient monarchy did rather mesh with uh, uh, contemporary, contemporary to him, ideas about Darwinism, evolution, and so on. Um, and he was very interested in history. His whole idea of anthropology it was diachronic. He was interested in what happened from stage to stage to stage. He wanted to see how things evolved. And uh, this gave him a kind of, evolution gave him a kind of framework it, it, uh, which he could arrange his examples around. Um, uh, and this helped him to structure his book, but also ultimately it was his downfall because as evolutionary ideas fell out of fashion, particularly in social anthropology from about sort of 1920 what, 20 on, so his ideas tended to fall into abeyance and there was a reaction against him. Um, which is something we must talk about when we get to the way that his ideas were treated and, and what happened to them um, after him, because there was a reaction against him and then his ideas came, uh, came back again in, in, in a new guise. Fascinating. I'm sure we're going to come back to this. I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that there was something very scandalizing about that footnote about the sort of the succession of yeah uh, you know sword in hand um and yet something probably really it, it probably looked really 
destabilizing compared to his experience with yeah. the monarchy. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, it probably, as you alluded to, meshed with some of the with the theory of the time. Yeah. Um, so so there is this probably like, hey, this sounds crazy if this would have worked. But, huh, like m- maybe that kind of succession would have worked. That's fascinating. Um, OK. For the for the ideas, what are some of the ideas of Fraser's the Golden Bath specifically that sort of took um, that maybe we hold on to now? What were some of the more acceptable takeaways or the accepted takeaways from that book? Um, right. And, and okay. I'll have you juxtapose that to the ones that were less accepted. <laughs> yes. I think when you're talking about his background, his intellectual background, which is what I was interested in, I think he's an heir to two different traditions. The first one is the Scottish Enlightenment. You know, uh, in the 18th century, Edinburgh had been the Athens of the North. Uh, And there was a great deal of intellectual activity in Scotland at the time. And a lot of Enlightenment figures like David Hume flourished there. The thinkers of the Enlightenment were very interested in what we call epistemology, the structure of knowledge, how we attain certainty, how we organize our ideas the deeply buried structures of the human mind, okay? So that's one inheritance that he's got. The second one, which is a countervailing one in a way, is the the high Victorian idea of evolution. So one part of him wants to say that there are these deep structures in the human, human mind that express themselves in different ways in myth, in ritual, and in religion. And these are constants of the human mind. They're deeply buried in the human psyche, and and they come out in a variety of forms. Now, that is an unchanging model. It's a model of the permanent structure of the human mind, and it's an enlightened one. Enlightenment one, you'll find it in Condorcet, you'll find it in Voltaire, you'll find it in a lot of French thinkers. The 19th century idea was one in which things constantly changed all the time from stage to stage. Um, And eventually Fraser got this idea that there have been three stages to human progress, that uh, originally people had organized their lives according to various magical practices. So there was a stage of magic, And the state of magic was one in which people tried to magically intervene in nature to make it go their own way, all right? Then they realized that it wasn't working, that magical magic, it it was a blind alley, that the magic often didn't work, so they needed a a different idea. According to Fraser, then what happened was the people fell on their knees and they prayed to God. They prayed for divine intervention, And then they went into what was called a religious phase. So you had a phase of magic, followed by a a phase of religion. And Fraser's idea was that by the late 19th century, which which is when he was writing, this phase of religion was also falling into abeyance and was being superseded by a new age, which he called the age of science, which is the age to which he belonged. So it went magic, religion, 
science, and that was a social evolutionary model. And it moved on, it was diachronic. It moved on from stage to stage. The other idea, the 18th century idea, was that there are certain permanent properties in the human mind that always express themselves in different ways. So you've got a model of permanence and you've also got a model of movement and you find the two things clashing in his work, actually. Fascinating. And people weren't sort of scandalized by the his his uh, the parts about magic that they, they weren't. Or was it easy for people to say, like, OK, people back then would have. Yeah, I guess they would have believed in magic or some form of magic. Would people have been sort of upset by the idea that magic became religion? Was there something I, I think there? Were, oh, yes, absolutely. There was a great backlash, okay. uh, particularly from the Christian church. Because Fraser was saying there's something called a survival and these various stages survive into one another. So mm -hmm. within the husk of uh, a religious system, you often got a magical core. Now, the prime example of that, of course, is the Eucharist, the Christian communion service, where, you know, the bread and the wine are supposed to be, supposed to be magic, magically transformed into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, the, the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which is a religious idea, has got a very uh, magical core. And Fraser was also writing at a time towards the end of the 19th century when there was an Anglo-Catholic revival and the Catholic Church was beginning to get on its feet again. And a lot of people were influenced by Roman Catholic ideas. And the whole idea, the whole notion, the whole theory that the most sacred ceremony in the entire, you know, corpus of Christian ritual was based on a barbaric ritual was profoundly shocking to them. Yeah. Yeah. You said. Uh, the Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Christ and you you, uh, you left out um, <laughs> ta tactfully that they then eat them. Yes, and then eat them. So there's, a, there's, there's an element of cannibalism going on. So yeah. and I do think Roman Catholics like to think of themselves as being cannibals. Yeah, although I don't know if you've come across any of the work of Rene Girard, but he's particularly yes. interested in the sort of uh, the ritualization of the, of the sacrificed scapegoat that yes. then becomes exalted. And you have... Yes. Interestingly, he's accepted by the church, which is fascinating to me because he's he seems so anthropological, um, yeah. which which might be, you know, might might give us good hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, so the religious community may have been scandalized by this. But interestingly, I imagine the way you describe that from magic to religion to science, yeah. that the scientific community, maybe at the time and still would be like, yes, here we are. We've arrived. Yes. <laughs> And, and yet in Fraser, it's... They, they were quite chuffed by this whole thing. Yes, they thought it was, I thought they, they thought it was great. And they, they took him to their hearts and they made him a fellow of the Royal Society of Science. And he was seen as being a kind of beacon of scientific enlightenment for a while. Uh, and he was seen as being a very forward looking thinker. And so I think the success of the Golden Bough in 1890 was a combination between scandal and renown. In other words, uh, mm. he scandalized a lot of people. He shocked a lot of people. And as you know, shocking books sell. And, <laughs> and 
And because he was shocking, people bought him. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, he he was obviously walking in 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 time with with the times. You know, he was he was in he was abreast of what was then seen as human progress. He was thought of as being an enlightenment figure who was showing the way ahead. So he had this good double reputation as being an iconoclast, but also a pathmaker. And and as a friend of mine says. And on the third hand, <laughs> that that idea of um, oh shoot, um, I'm blanking on the word, but the the carryover um, from magic to religion, the survival, the survival, the, yeah, the survival yeah. principle would necessarily relate to science. So there would be a magical core of science. In, of science is yeah. am I mistaken in that regard? No, you're not. No, no, that's a brilliant observation. If I may say so, for somebody who's never read the book, <laughs> actually, Fraser thought of of magic as being a sort of primitive version of science because it was a form of intervention in nature, right. and engineering is a form of intervention in nature. So I think he thought of magic and science as being on the same wavelength. The odd man out was religion. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, before I ask why religion was the odd man out, um, before I ask that, I have to imagine that he was sitting in the Royal Academy of Science, <laughs> sitting sitting there thinking, well, I better not say, <laughs> I better not tell these people that I actually think that science is magic. <laughs> <laughs> so so why was religion the odd man out? Because I, I kind of see how that, tr- I see how because, there's because a through it line there. It, it wasn't a technique of human intervention. It, it, it was it, it was the technique of, for him uh, mm. of, of, of self-abasement. Instead of relying on your own resources and thinking your way through problems as a wizard did and as a scientist does in his laboratory, mm. you fell down on your knees and you worship God and you, you sought, for an, sought for an answer from outside the human community. And with part of him, he thought that that was a kind of abnegation of human responsibility, because I think he thought that both musicians and scientists were taking their lives in their hands. They were intervening. They were trying to change things for the better. Whereas Mm. I think he thought of priests as being self-abasing and self-abased people who didn't try. You know, they relied on a sacred book. They relied Mm. on received rituals. They relied on on an intervention from on high. They didn't do it themselves. They wanted something to come down from the sky. Hmm. That that fascinates that it fascinates me. My instinct to sort of imagine that it would be the opposite that that all three, in my mind, seem at least similar insofar as you have. It's not like the entire community is conducting science or the entire community is conducting magic or the entire community is religion, but that you have a practitioner. You have the witch doctor or the shaman. You have the priest Pre- or the priestess. And the scientist. That's right. And then underneath them, you have com- the common people who s- sort of self-abase to the process. And then yeah. even the practitioners are sort of self-abasing to the process. If the if the priest is sort of um, giving himself over to the religious process, yeah. I see the scientist is sort of like, yeah, this stinks and this is hard and this is arduous, but I have to have trust in the process. Yeah, um, I definitely do see what you're saying about 
there being a little bit more agency in the the bookended practitioners. Yeah. But I wonder my mind goes with the religious people, um, the religious practitioners, that they would have been sort of crafting up the right prayers and trying to craft up the right interpretations of the texts. Yes. Um, similar to, you know, the scientists trying to concoct the correct formula or the correct experiment. Um, that's really interesting that that religion would have sort of been the odd man out. Fascinating. OK, um, those are some of the more accepted views. Correct. I'm curious then what the less accepted views might have been. And if I can maybe lead you along. Yeah. Um, I'm curious I, I'm anticipating some really wild, unaccepted ideas. <laughs> this seems like such an aberrant thinker, which is really exciting. Yeah. And my question is, what are those ideas? But then also, as someone who studied the history of those ideas, yeah. do you think that there's a one sort of necessitates the other where we all want to sort of accept the acceptable ones? Um, we want to get rid of the ones that seem a little less palatable. Right. You sort of look at it like he would have never found the, the accepted ideas if he wasn't willing to risk these these more aberrant ideas. I'm wondering, I don't know if that's too loose of a question. Right. It's quite a, it's quite a difficult one, really. <laughs> um, I'm happy to rephrase or break into chunks, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I might benefit from a from a second shot at that question if you're if you need a. <laughs> um. I suppose it might be helpful to talk about uh, his, his relationship with other anthropologists, I think, which is something we haven't talked about so far. Okay, sure. We talked about the you know, general reading public, the, the, the religious community, the scientific community, and the way that they reacted to his ideas. Um, he was right at the beginning, really, of what we would call cultural anthropology, um, what has become social anthropology. It wasn't yet professionalized. I mean, there are people who'd written about it before, a man called Edward Burnett Tyler, who wrote a book called um, Primitive Culture. It came out about 20 years before him. But he really didn't have any colleagues, you know. He was quite a lonely figure. And what was, what was strange and arresting about him was his ability to reach across from the classics to contemporary uh, life in amongst the Australian Aborigines, to Melanesia, then you go back to the Anglo-Saxons. The whole idea of ranging across so widely was quite threatening, I think, to specialists in these different disciplines because they, they wanted to retain these things as separate. I mean, the classicists, not all of the classicists were happy of with him sort of bringing in their discoveries and their research into line with what was happening amongst Aborigines in Australia or in Sub-Saharan Africa. This was initially rather threatening to, to them. And again, as time went on and social anthropology developed as a discipline, it wanted to see itself as something separate and apart. And it wanted, it became increasingly dissatisfied 
with this comparative method that I've been telling you about. Mm. So from about 1920, his reputation was on the slide. The person who started the rebellion against him, ironically, was one of his protégés, a man called Bronislaw Malinowski. Have you heard of Malinowski? No. He was a Pole from Krakow. He trained as a scientist. He fell out of love with science and he fell in love with anthropology by reading The Golden Bough. And in about 1914, he became a pupil of Fraser's and he decided to do some anthropological field work of his own. He went to Australia, at which point the First World War broke out. He was a Pole from the Austrian part of Poland. So technically he was an enemy alien. So he didn't come back to Europe and he spent the whole of the war years uh, researching in Australia, New Guinea and the, uh, the Tribune Islands. And then he came back to England in about 1920 and he wrote a terribly influential book called Argonauts of the Western Pacific. And it was just a very detailed study of the Trobrian Islanders and their culture as he observed it during the war years. Now, he didn't really, I think he found rather threatening the idea that his very, very local discoveries were somehow going to be watered down, as he saw it, by comparison with other parts of the world. And he started a reaction against the comparative method and uh, pioneered a school of anthropology known as functionalism. And the whole point about functionalism is you see a society as an isolated unit. You don't write, don't compare it with other societies. You see it as isolated. You're not interested in its history. You're interested in that society in which you observed it during the four or five or six years of your field work. Uh, and Malinowski founded a school of anthropology based on the London, based in the London School of Economics, um, and he completely reacted against Fraser's ideas of comparativism. He thought that they were sloppy. He thought that they were they slid all over the place. He thought they had no rigor. He just wanted to base everything on this very rigorous on the ground, very localized sort of spade work, field work. And from that point on, anthropology as a discipline was revolutionized. There was a great reaction against these long books comparing different societies and these periods to one another, such as Fraser had written. And anthropologists became people who went to the field, did three years field work on a particular society, the more isolated, the better. And then they wrote up this society in a tight little monograph and they didn't mention any other society, nor did they see uh, that society as something which moved through time, which Fraser was. So Fraser's what we call diachronic model of moving on from stage to stage was supplanted by a, synch a synchronic model in which societies were seen as isolated, unchanging, and what was interesting to this school of anthropologists was to see how the various bits of that society fitted in one with one another. So they regarded individual societies as 
isolated organisms. Uh, and uh, where they put them under the microscope, they examined them very, very minutely, but they didn't refer to the past of that society. They didn't speculate about the future of the, that society, nor definitely did they compare it with other societies. Uh, and and Anglo-American anthropology for about 20 or 30 years was dominated by, by that point of view. It went on for a very long time, my first wife, in fact, studied at the London School of Economics in the early 1960s. And even then, which was 20 years after Malinowski's death, the first, uh, the first lecture in the first year in social anthropology was devoted to telling people not to read Fraser. Because he will mislead you. He will, he will make you a, into a generalist. You will start comparing things and, and you won't do the nitty gritty field work, which is what it is expected of you. So for, from that point on, Fraser's reputation strictly within social anthropology started to decline. Where at the same time, it was spreading elsewhere. It was spreading in literature, in classics, in other disciplines. But within social anthropology, Fraser became virtually a taboo name between about 1930 and 1965. At, at around 1965, I'm curious if there was then reaction to the reaction of, Mel, of the Melanovsky school that included. Not in England. OK, I'm the wondering if it included. About in a, like a Jungian interpretation, because it seems like Fraser would have linked up interestingly with with Jung's ideas of the archetypes, and that Melanovsky's yeah. ideas actually are might be remiss in part because they don't acknowledge uh, that. Absolutely, um, because he was interested in the structure of the mind, and he had a universal theory of the structure of the human mind. He was taken up very much in the 1930s, not by so much by, but by. Um, not so much by Jung as by the structuralists, people mm. like Claude Lévi-Strauss. Mm. Now, Claude Lévi-Strauss was very interested in kinship groups and the way the intellectual structure of kinship groups. He'd done his field work in amongst um, Amazonian Indians and so on. And he was very interested in patterns of ideas, structures of ideas, as they manifested themselves in different locations. And so he found Fraser very, very useful, because Fraser gave him a way of thinking about the human intellect and the way that it relates to society. Um, so I think Fraser's ideas, as it were, were smuggled in under the carpet in the guise of structuralism and structuralist anthropology doesn't always acknowledge Fraser, but um, there's a great deal of Fraser there. Claude Lévi-Strauss is endlessly referencing Fraser. And Lévi-Strauss's influence was dominant in continental social anthropology, not only anthropology, but in literary criticism and so on, and the humanities for, for a long time, between the sort of mid-60s, and the end of the 20th century. So Fraser, although people didn't always acknowledge Fraser, Fraser's ideas were circulating 
but often in, a, in an unacknowledged way. So I think that's carried on. Can I just turn the lights on? <laughs> yeah, I can't help but notice that it's gotten dark behind you and so I'm aware of the time. Look at that. Um, now I think what's happened since then is that Levi-Strauss influenced uh, a later development, the evolution of what is now often known as cognitive anthropology. Mm. And cognitive anthropology is a school of thought that's come along really since the millennium. And it's particularly interested. Well, Roy Dandrad, who's the scholar from America, wrote a book called The Development of Cognitive Anthropology. And he defines cognitive anthropology in this way. He says, it is the study of the relation between human society and human thought. Now, that's Fraser's theme. You know, it's coming back again. Interesting. And in that yeah. book, does he reference Fraser explicitly? Yeah, he doesn't even mention it. Does he? He mentions, he mentions Levi Strauss. You see, I think Fraser's influence has, has, has been carried forward to the 21st century via structuralism. Mm. That's what's happened. But a lot of social anthropologists are rather ignorant of the history of their own subject. So they don't realize that Levi Strauss's ideas are based on Fraser's at all. Um, there's no reference in this book to Fraser. And yet, you know, his influence is written all over it. You know, hmm. sometimes people are recycling ideas and they've no idea where they came from. Yeah. Know? Well, I, I, if I use, you know, sometimes you get a cup, right, or something yeah. uh, from a store and it'll say, you know, 100 percent recycled. Yeah, exactly. And I have no idea where, where those materials came from. I wonder if sometimes intellectually people pick things up, as you as you sort of suggested, and, and they just really don't know where they came from. Yeah, and Roy Dandrag talks about something called agenda hopping, particularly within social anthropology, that every generation comes along. They rubbish the previous generation because they want to make room for their own ideas. But in, rub in rubbishing the previous generation, they don't realize that the previous generation's ideas are based on something still older, which they don't even know about at all. And in mm. fact, they're repeating, they're repeating ideas that were actually quite current. <laughs> 70 years ago <laughs> yeah interesting um and i can't help but think that i don't want to make a straw man of melanovsky but it it seemed the way that you portrayed that at least that he was he was particularly interested in making room for his own ideas he but was then, but then yeah. might have accidentally set off this sort of relativistic re reaction yes that's right that's but it. i wonder it seems so paradoxical, especially now. I mean, that, that seems to carry through to today where we have this conflict, seemingly internal conflict, where we want to say that everybody's the same, right? And everybody deserves the same things. Yeah. And yet there's this emphasis on relativism where, yeah. you know, please don't compare groups that, you know, that that's sort of like a faux pas. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know how you sort of square those two. Hmm. Well, I'm aware of the time, so I don't want to I don't want to go over. Uh, if you don't mind, one more question. You yeah. said at the beginning that you're really interested in, in the drama of ideas and the clash of ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. What ideas are sort of circulating today or in vogue today that you don't see getting enough pushback? That you think are sort of waiting or you're waiting uh, for people to start to push back on and challenge appropriately? Um. 
I suppose the whole idea of political correctness is, became, is becoming very worrying in England because it strikes me that censorship is coming back in a new guise. Mm. And I don't know whether in American campuses, campuses you have things like you know, safe spaces and trigger warnings and that kind of thing. I grew up with the idea in universities that you read everything, you know. There were no barriers, there were no banned books, there were no trigger warnings. The more risky, the more threatening a book, the more exciting it was, and the more you should go to it. And the first book you should go to is a book that challenged your ideas. But now there seems to be a protective idea that students are kind of, you know, delicate organisms that you don't challenge them because they might burst into tears or something and, and in universities this idea of protecting ideas and and not challenging them is becoming more and more dominant and it seems to me to be a very regressive tendency and it's becoming more and more dominant and people are questioning it beginning to question it very much. And the people who begin to question it very much are sometimes written off as a very right wing. I don't think they are right wing. I think what they're trying to do is protect freedom of thought. And it strikes me that freedom of thought is very much threatened. Um, is that true in America, do you think? Definitely. No, I, I, I definitely see that. And in fact, there are some there are some English intellectuals. I think Douglas Murray comes to mind yeah. where, I, where I see people interestingly scandalized here where they'll, they'll sort of whisper to you, have you read anything by Douglas Murray <laughs> <laughs> or sort of handing off the book really privately? And you think, <laughs> you think isn't that an interesting sign, right? Or <clears throat> there are some American um, intellectuals that get the same sort of whisper. <laughs> um Thomas Sowell comes to mind or uh, John McWhorter who writes for the New York times. And yeah. so in my mind is clearly not <laughs> right wing. <laughs> yes. that's right. Um, I saw, I saw, I think a headline this morning. I can't remember if it was the New Yorker or the New York times. It was just sort of recommended in my news feed. Uh, and it, and it said quite literally, I think if I'm remembering correctly, should there be trigger warnings before Ovid's metamorphosis? <laughs> and there was a translation, I guess there's a yeah. new translation that I guess is so um, yeah. descriptive and, and, and sort of speaks to some of the innuendos in the language, yeah. in the original language that now, you know, obviously read is really aggressive or sexual or violent or whatever they might be, or maybe a combination where people are sort of saying, should we, should we include a trigger warning on this? Um, and, and I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. And it seems to almost suggest that if you are going to Ovid's Metamorphosis or an older text, that you should expect not to be scandalized. And yet, the old great books seem to be <laughs> like the most scandalous books. Um, it just seems like we're so estranged from what ought to be appropriate expectations of those books or of those ideas. Well, I think I lost you. Can you hear me? Hmm. Can you hear me? 
I'll try again. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I thought that was. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's fine. That's oh, fine. Great. No, uh, a new vice chancellor has just been um, appointed to Sussex University, where I studied for my first two degrees. And I was interested in, to find out, you know, how she was approaching this problem. Uh, there had been a report in the Times newspaper that books were be beginning to be censored mm. um, in our university. For example, Voltaire's Candide, of all things, was taken off a reading list because it was felt to be too challenging to for, for first year students. And this really worried me. So I, I approached a number of my contemporaries from the university and I said, you know, shall we write a letter, to, an open letter to the vice chancellor asking her what her attitude is to these developments? And eventually, I, mean, I got a group of about three or four of us together. A couple weren't actually willing to join in, hmm. either because, you know, they, they were very PC and didn't want PC ideas to be to be to be challenged or the opposite but um I, I wrote a letter and i said to her you know what is this what is happening because um there'd been a an alarming case in the university last year where a a philosopher a lesbian philosopher had written a book challenging the trans lobby not really opposing it, just asking questions about, for example, was there a biological difference between men and women? Uh, and asking, just opening questions about gender choice. Um, she wasn't sacked, but life was made so difficult for her that she had to resign. Mm. This was very worrying that a philosopher whose entire job is to question ideas. Sure. As soon as he starts questioning an idea, has to move on. Um, so we, we confronted her with this and said, what would you do in an equivalent situation? And I'm afraid we got a rather equivocating answer. Mm. So really, uh, watch this space. Let's see what's going to happen. Um, but it I is worrying for me because my entire attitude to everything is based on intellectual challenge, intellectual conflict, confronting difficult questions. Mm. Suddenly you've got a, a lobby which sees itself as advanced that seems to want to close discussion down. Yeah, that is peculiarly seemingly regressive, as you said. I can't help but think, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Parseval by uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach. Oh, know. yes, yes, that's right, yeah. <clears throat> there's this incredible moment where the first time Parseval actually gets to the Grail castle. Yeah. He sees the Grail King who's been sort of speared uh, in the crotch. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's this wasteland motif. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be familiar with knowing um, George Barker and Elliot, but there's this wasteland motif and um that seems to be what Parsifal's trying to sort of deliver the community from and himself from. Yeah. And he looks at the Grail King, but he was sort of remembers his education yeah. as a knight and his education forbids him from asking questions. Yeah. 
And so he tries to just, you know, suppress his instinct and walk by the Grail King and the Grail King sort of calls him out on it and says, you know, how dare you uh, hold that back? If, if that is sort of coming out of you, you should have expressed that. And the Grail King sort of turns into a, like an old witch. Yeah. <laughs> the Grail disappears, the castle disappears, and he's back in the forest of yeah. adventure or whatever. And I can't help but think, you know, that's a little romantic and a little poetic, perhaps, but I can't help but think that there's we're sort of given a choice. Like if we actually can express genuine interests and genuine questions in good faith, yeah. um, are we sort of revisiting this? this wasteland motif of everybody sort of playing along. And, and, and as I'm sure you're familiar with T.S. Eliot, one reading of his wasteland is that the wasteland is what happens when everyone does what they should do or what they're supposed to do. Yes. I can't help it. I'm sure that's not the way to sell this concern. I'm sure that's a little too esoteric, but I can't help but, but sometimes revisit that idea. But no, that's a great, that's a great answer to that question. Again, I'm aware of the time. Uh, we didn't get to Proust. Um, maybe if you listen back to this and you're still interested in a second conversation or more, I would love to jump back in on Proust. Um, but I can't, I can't thank you enough for, for taking this time. I really enjoyed this conversation. And That's all right. uh, yeah, I can't wait to re to revisit it and listen it back. It was fascinating. Okay. So Suzu, we might have a second go on Proust sometime. Yeah. If you're interested in that, I would love to follow up on that. Okay. <laughs> See you. Bye. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Fraser.